0: With John, as he uh, takes us to the cross of Jesus, helps us to see uh, the wonder and the power of what Jesus has done for us. And so, we'll pick up where we left off last week. I'll begin reading in verse 33 of chapter 18. And uh, I'll read all the way um, uh, through verse 16. Of chapter 19. So, a little bit more of an extended passage this morning. I'll ask your patience. I think it is good for us to hear this uh, as a whole. And so, John chapter 18, verse 33. So, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. And They cried out away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. He delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we come to this um, somber and disturbing text? Uh, we come trusting that this is a gift from you. Uh, These are words from you. That these words are accompanied by your Holy Spirit with power to bring life, to change, to transform, to challenge and to comfort. And so, uh, Father, we... In many ways, we want to protect ourselves from this because it's disturbing. So would you enable us to humbly open ourselves to it? To receive and to hear these words and to be changed by them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. October 1995. I was a freshman at the Florida State University and I was walking through the Oglesby Student Union and I was about to cross Woodward Avenue when a car came speeding by and through the open window of that car someone screamed, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. That's how I heard about the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial. This, This past year, there were two major television productions revisiting that event. And I think one of the reasons that moment so captured us as a culture, and in many ways still haunts us as a culture, is that... Whatever your opinion of what happened in and around that trial, it raises for us deep questions about the possibility of justice. About the possibility of wrong being named and being made right. And it raises those questions not just for an individual crime, but because it got connected to the open wound of racial injustice in our nation. It raises these profound concerns for us staring over our history as a culture and our history as individuals. Is justice possible? Is it possible for what is profoundly wrong with our world to be made right. Don't you wonder that? Don't you long for that when you see disturbing images of Syrian refugees? Don't you wonder about that with the wrong that's been done to you? Don't you maybe wonder about that with the wrong that you have done to others? Is justice possible? Have you ever noticed that when the Bible tells us the story of Jesus' death, as it is here in John 18 and 19, that it always tells us the story of his trial. We never get the death of Jesus without The trial of Jesus before the Jewish authorities and before Pilate. Why is that? Well, because the cross is about justice. The cross is about justice. Jesus' trial and death is about the possibility of what is wrong with the world... Being named and made right. And so this morning I want us to bring our questions. I want us to bring our wondering and our longing about justice to this text. To the trial of Jesus. And we'll see here Jesus doing two things. He exposes and he enacts. He exposes injustice and he enacts true justice. So first of all, he exposes. Jesus comes to Pilate as a defendant. He comes as the accused criminal, right? But isn't it interesting that throughout this whole passage, Jesus is constantly reversing the roles. He's the one, he's not only has questions asked of him, but he flips it and he begins to ask questions. And he puts Pilate and he puts the Jewish authorities in the dock on trial and he prosecutes them. And in doing so, he proves the failure of two legal systems. Pilate represents the inability of the Roman court system to act justly in this situation. When Pilate asks that famous question, what is truth? That's not a philosophical question. He is expressing a legal cynicism. Jesus has just called himself as his own chief witness. He says, I am the witness. I am here to bear witness. I am the only reliable witness to what is true. And Pilate is dismissing that. He is dismissing the possibility of a reliable witness to the truth. And in doing so, Pilate reveals himself as someone who is not interested in what is true. He is interested in what is practical. Pilate is the ultimate pragmatic politician. That's why he bounces between Jesus and the Jewish rulers. This whole text is staged in these two places where Pilate is bouncing back and forth between these two environments. And he's trying, by doing that, he's a negotiator. He is trying to work out a solution. He's trying to prevent a riot. He is trying to keep the peace. But in his attempt to do that, he ultimately chooses what is practical over what is just. He knows that Jesus is guilty. I mean, that Jesus is innocent. Pardon me. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He says it over and over again. He senses, he intuits that Jesus is something else. Jesus is something more, something special. But in the end, he sits down on the seat of Rome's judgment. And he releases a dangerous, guilty man. Barabbas wasn't just a robber. He was a terrorist. He releases a terrorist and condemns The only innocent man who ever lived. Why? Because he is manipulating this situation in order to maintain his and Rome's political position in that region. He sacrifices truth and justice for the purpose of political power which is utterly unique in the history of politics. (laughs) Yeah, that's a joke. I'm glad you laughed. I I planned that. I was like, are they going to get that that's a joke? (laughs) Jesus profoundly exposing the human heart, human culture, human politics. And so the Roman justice system fails. But there's another system at work here. It was the system that was supposed to uphold not Roman law, but God's law. And you can trace throughout Jesus' trial numerous ways that the Jewish authorities failed to uphold the legal standards set out by God in the Old Testament. But let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's go right to the heart of their failure. To enact God's justice. It's there in verse 15 of chapter 19. Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? And he's asking that in jest, in a way. He's making fun of Jesus and he's making fun of the Jewish rulers. Shall I crucify your king? What's their response? We have no king but Caesar. Now according to the heart of God's law they were supposed to say we have no king but Yahweh. We have no king but God. But in order to get what they want. In order to remove the perceived threat of Jesus. In order to remove him as their competition. In order to execute the one who they can could they accused of blasphemy they blasphemed they blasphemed they committed idolatry they put caesar in the place of god And that is the heart of their failure. That is why they fail to uphold these legal standards. That's why they act unjustly. Because they are putting something, someone, in the place of God. And that's not only the heart of their, their failure. That is the heart of all injustice. Putting something or someone in the place of God. That is why we as human beings cannot create a just society. It is because we attempt to put someone or something in the place of God. It's been there since the beginning. The biblical storyline very early on tells us about two major sins. Adam and Eve eating the prohibited fruit. And then what happens next? Cain murdering his brother Abel. Those two are connected. The second one flows from the first one. God rejected. His ways rejected. Replaced. And then what happens? Injustice. When we reject and replace the creator, we always mistreat those made in his image. That's the heart of injustice. That's what Jesus exposes in this text. And by doing that, he pulls us into the narrative. He pulls us into the trial. You see, Jesus' trial puts us on trial. It exposes how we have joined this long heritage of rejecting our Creator and Harming those made in His image. We, like the Roman justice system, like the Jewish justice system, are not only unable to correct what has gone wrong with the world, we are deeply complicit in what has gone wrong with the world. I was reading recently about John Alton... You might not know that name, but John Alton is one of the most important cinematographers in the history of American movie making. And he is important because he created an an entirely new way of filming movies. And he created the visual style that's called film noir. You might not know that title, but you know Humphrey Bogart, right? You know those old, hard-boiled detective movies, usually in black and white, like The Maltese Falcon, like The Big Sleep. And and part of the point of those stories, what's what's a part of of that storytelling, is that in them, there are no good guys. Even the detective that's solving the crime is corrupt, morally compromised. There are no good guys. And so John Alton, as a cinematographer, had to figure out a way to communicate that visually. And at that time, in old Hollywood, shadow was the enemy. And so they they would put these bright lights, they would hang them above the set, and they would shine light on everything to try to banish every single shadow. Alton did the opposite. He took all of the lights down. And he would light the scene with one light in the room, like a lamp on the table. And what that did is it cast shadow on the set and on the actors. What is is he saying? He's saying everyone's in shadow. The shadow falls on everyone. The darkness is a part of everyone. Jesus' trial is film noir. Jesus is the one light in the scene. And he casts a shadow on us all. He exposes that we are all complicit in what has gone wrong with the world. And we hate that message. We hate that message. We so want to say, no, 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 no. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Or, or, or we want to point the finger of blame elsewhere. We want to point it at someone else. The church has done that with this text in history. The church has taken this text and pointed at Jewish people and said it's their fault completely missing the point that, no, it's all of our fault. This is a failure of Jewish and Gentile justice. This is the exposure of a human failure in which we are all apart. And I I know that this is a heavy message to hear. It's heavy for me to hear. But there is no possibility of justice without realizing that the shadow falls on us all. That the darkness is a part of us all. And I would would go further and say that some of the most dangerous people in the world are those who can't see it. Those who think they are above the darkness. Now, what's that? What, what that has done is just, just take us all down. If you were in a good mood this morning, we just we took that away. <laughs> and it also seems to take to take our question this morning: Is justice possible? And to answer it with a resounding no, a cynical no, no justice is impossible. Not if the shadow falls on us all, but we need to keep. Reading, we need to keep attending to this text and we need to find Jesus and see that he not only exposes, but he also enacts. He exposes injustice and he enacts true justice. The most important question that Pilate asks in this text isn't what is truth. That's not the most important question. The most important question is. Where are you from? Where are you from? It's in verse 9 of chapter 19. And it's the most important question because of this. Because that question of location is the only one that can address the possibility of justice. It is the only one that can make justice possible because of this. Because of what we have seen, earthly justice is not possible with human beings. It's not possible with the earth figuring out how to do justice. Earthly justice is possible only with the intrusion of the heavenly judge. Earthly justice is possible only if heaven... Invades. Only if the divine judge gets involved. That's why Jesus isn't interested in talking about whether he's a king or not. You know, it's, notice how he constantly deflects that? He's not interested in talking about whether he is a king or not. He is interested in talking about where his kingdom comes from. Because the only possibility of justice is if the heavenly judge intrudes to take what is wrong and make it right. And so Jesus participates in this trial, not just as a prosecutor, but as the judge. As the divine judge, as the embodiment of a justice that transcends Roman power, that transcends the Jewish legal system. He embodies heavenly justice, the only hope, the only possibility of what is wrong being made right. But that creates another problem. Because doesn't that mean that real justice condemns us? If the light, the only light, casts a shadow in us, doesn't the presence of the heavenly judge condemn us, put us outside the circle? Well, no. Because Jesus is not only the presence of the heavenly judge, he is the action of the heavenly judge. And how does he act? How does he enact heavenly justice? He does not condemn. He is condemned. He, in, he does not enact heavenly justice by condemning, but by Being condemned. The remarkable. World changing truth. Here is that the judge. Was judged. In your place. The only. Innocent one. Was condemned. In your place. Where do I get that from? Would you notice how strewn throughout chapters 18 and 19, John is constantly telling us what time it is? And he's constantly telling us that it's Passover o'clock. All right. He is constantly reminding us this is all happening at the Passover. This is all happening at the Passover. This is all happening at the Passover. What's the Passover? Passover is the yearly reenactment of the greatest justice story ever told. Before this one. It was the story of God intruding on history. To rescue his oppressed, his enslaved people. And how does he do that? He does that by pouring out his judgment on Egypt. And this is the key question. Why are his people exempt from that judgment? God pours out a just death sentence on Egypt. And why were his people exempt from that judgment? Because they were innocent? No. No. They are not exempt because they are innocent victims. Why are they exempt from God's judgment? Because they're covered. Not because they're innocent. They are covered by the blood of that lamb that had been sacrificed, that had taken the death sentence in their place and whose blood was spread on the doors of their home. That's why they could walk out of their homes towards life and freedom instead of enduring the death sentence of the judgment of God. Not because they were innocent but because they were covered. So do you you get why John is constantly reminding us what time it is? He is saying, look here. Here is the final. Here is the ultimate Passover lamb. The blameless one. The innocent one. Suffering the sentence of your guilt, so that you can walk towards life and freedom. That is Jesus in acting just justice by being judged in our place. We need to hear when Pilate brings him out. To mock Him and says, Behold the man. We need to hear the beginning of John's Gospel where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we see Jesus standing there in that purple robe, mockingly dressed as a king, we need to see His crown and in his crown, we need to see the thorns of the curse from Genesis 3. The thorns of the curse digging into his head, making the blood run down his face. Bearing the judgment that our rebellion deserves. That's how justice is possible. It is the judge being judged in our place. And here's what frees us for a life of seeking justice. It is that we're not on trial anymore. Because Jesus went to trial. If you are in him by faith, you are not on trial. Trial anymore. So why do you live your life. As if you are. So much of the harm. That we do one another. And I mean this. In the whole range. From geopolitics. To marital politics. To life in our families. Life in our friendships. Life at work. The reason that we act unjustly so often, the reason that we harm one another so often is we are trying to prove that we are right. We are trying to prove that we are good or at least better than you. We are trying to prove that we are worthy. We are living Life as if we are on trial, trying to get that verdict for ourselves. If you don't believe me, you gotta believe Vaclav Havel. Okay, Vaclav Havel uh, was a, a Czech political dissident. Uh, who stood against political oppression, and then after the Velvet Revolution in that region of the world, he became the president of Czechoslovakia and then the president of the Czech Republic after it split. And he gave a, a, a very insightful speech about political power and how political power gets corrupted. Why people act unjustly. People with power act unjustly. And he says, you know, when people people seek out that power, they often start with very good intentions. They genuinely want to do what is good for their country or for their city. But he says they get into that position, and then their profound need for self-affirmation takes over and becomes the driving force of their life. And they use their power not to serve others, but to affirm themselves. To get a positive verdict for themselves. Can you see how Jesus turns that upside down? Can you see how Jesus frees us from that rat race? Can you see how Jesus frees us to step into our lives and to address what is wrong in our lives and in our world. How He frees us to push against the darkness that is within us and that is around us because we're not on trial anymore. He was condemned so that you could be acquitted. So that you, instead of living life Proving yourself. You can live life giving of yourself. For the good of others. For the good of your neighborhood. For the good of our city. For the purpose of seeking what is just. Even when that's partial. Even when that's imperfect. Because you're not on trial anymore. You see as you walk through life whether you're walking through the Oglesby Union or not, Jesus, with his scars, screams from the window of heaven. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Let's pray.